We'll finish up this week by hearing what James has to say in chapter 2. A really kind of a, a difficult uh, passage to, uh, to teach. So, so stick with me and pray for me as we go. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 points of disagreement with the medieval Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, he nailed it to the door of the uh, castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. He'd come to see that, that that faith's position on the role of works and salvation didn't match what he read in the Apostle Paul. So he began to, to debate this, to write about it. Luther believed that uh, he was justified in a conclusion that actually the book of James he thought it was a little bit spurless. He called it a right strawy epistle, whatever that means. Uh, you'd have to, I guess, know uh, how German was translated into, into Old English in those days to really understand it. But he kind of had a problem with, if Paul teaches salvation by faith alone, um, then where does James fit into all this? Um, so he might have been justified in some ways. Uh, James seems to contradict Paul. The key word there is seems. Um, uh, James makes no mention of Jesus' death or resurrection. That was kind of a problem for, for Martin Luther. James himself wasn't of the same caliber as Paul in some ways or, or the other apostles. So consequently, Luther kind of had a problem with the book that you and I have been studying here for the last two or three weeks. We'll try to kind of bring it in, into sync here today a little bit. Um, Barclay claims... <laughs> Um, you'll, you're going to laugh at this. As I, I just wrote Barclay in my notes, and I came about that close to saying, Charles Barclay said, that's, and he would have said, uh, you know, uh, I'll put it a fool or something like that. Anyway, um, yeah, um, this is not Charles Barclay. He speaks on other things. This is uh, William Barclay. Claims that James and Paul are, that I like this, they're reflecting two different things times in the life of a Christian, that Paul is talking about how faith begins, how salvation, how your walk with Christ begins uh, in regeneration. James, he thinks, is talking about the professing Christian moving forward. Now, I kind of like that, um, but I think what, regardless of how you take it, I think we can use this um, uh, to help us in our study and help us in our understanding of walking by faith, walking wisely. Um, um, so Barclay is going to say that both Paul and James would say the same thing, that we're not saved by deeds, but we're saved for deeds. He believes that both James and Paul would say that, and I'm kind of in agreement with that. Now, let's go then to James 2. We're going to start with verse 14. And I'm going to ask uh, Brother Blair to read this out loud, if you would, 14 down through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed who does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Okay. 
Do you think James might be just a little blunt? I, th- I really think he is. John, it is so good to have you back. Well, can I dare prevail on you to read your first week back? Okay, you, I think you'll recognize this. Go in a minute, if you would go to uh, Matthew 7, 26. I want you to read how Jesus leads up to a parable that you and I uh, kind of will recognize here in talking about this. Now, James is blunt in starting this whole conversation. What, what good is it? You can kind of hear that. You can kind of hear the tone in that, can't you? Faith here, as he's using it in verse 14, Um, is really this idea of mental assent, a belief in God. And James is going to be in agreement, I think, with what Jesus says as he's leading up to his teaching and this little parable on, um, remember the the wise man and the foolish man? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Uh, uh, John, read Matthew 7, 26. It's going to lead up to that story. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. If he hears it, believes it, but doesn't put it into practice. Sounds like James and Jesus are kind of in, uh, in agreement here, I think. The idea, faith in its fullness involves action. Faith as a full faith. We're going to talk in a minute about empty faith. Faith in its fullness involves action. Now, uh, by the way, the word that goes in your blank there, sorry, because this is kind of a 25-cent word anyway. Faith, as James is using it here in verse 14, is a kind of a confessional faith. I believe. Okay? I believe. Now, James may be using in verse 15 a little bit of overstatement for effect. But we got to recognize that in in James's world, poverty was very much a real thing. Now, um, uh, probably what is dealt with here is inadequate clothing, all right? Um, When it says uh, in, uh, in verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing, okay, I was reading, um, I've been on this kind of study of, you know, you've heard me talk about reading everything I can get my hands on about buffalo for some reason. I'm I'm interested in bison. But I'm also reading, that led me to read about all kinds of Old West stuff. And I'm reading reading a book right now about um, Quanah Parker. So you can look that one up. Uh, Fascinating book uh, about Quanah Parker, who was... Uh, his mother was, was Texan, okay, and his father was full-blood Comanche. And uh, Quantum led the kind of, he was maybe the only chief the Comanches ever really recognized. The, the Comanches kind of led themselves. They didn't really have chiefs necessarily other than, than uh, small tribal chiefs. Anyway, as I'm reading this, I, I read about a raid that the Comanches made on Victoria, Texas. Now, I'm sorry John isn't here. He, he'd know exactly where Victoria, Texas is. But they go in to Victoria, Texas, and they had just received uh, by rail um, uh, some dry goods store, general store, had just received all these clothes, fancy clothes, Okay. Um, and, and, um, these, um, uh, warriors went in there and came out 
got back on their ponies in top hat and tails. I mean, they're, they're dressed fancy. They went in, you know, with uh, no shirt on and breech cloths and that kind of whole thing because that's what they wore. And they saw these clothes and they thought, well, this is cool. So they, they dress up in all these clothes. And it, it, it's kind of comical to think about, really. But they're, um, so for the next several days, they're in wool and they're in top hats. And, you know, I, I just find that kind of interesting. The issue was that for the white man, maybe they, were, if they felt like they were inappropriately dressed. Well, now they weren't, right? Although you and I know that's just white culture we're dealing with here, right? And, and the difference between that and Native American culture. So maybe it is. Maybe he's overstating this a little bit. Um, the word that he uses here, I put the reference to John 21, 7. The, the, um, the word that he uses here uh, for a person or this phrase for a person without clothing in verse 15 is the same expression that John uses after the resurrection when, when it says that Peter jumped out of the boat without his clothes on and went to meet Jesus, okay? That doesn't mean that he was naked, just mean he did. He meant he didn't put his coat on. Coat on when he when he got out of the boat. Okay, you remember that story? Uh, and Jesus was cooking fish on the on the uh, on the beach. Okay, so but the issue is here that the pursuit and and the more I read about this, even in in United States history back 100 150 years ago, the pursuit of daily food and rations was a big deal. Certainly in James's day, for a persecuted Jewish people spread out over the Roman Empire, just finding bread to eat today was the major thing I was, I was dealing with every day. So can you see then in verse 15, the context here of James saying, um, don't close your heart in compassion to, um, to a brother or sister. Um, if a brother or sister was out clothing and in need of daily food. And so in verse 16, he uses words that seem to us, and they should seem, kind of callous, all right? Uh, I'm going to read them from the, um, the New American Standard. By the way, I keep looking at the clock. I have no idea when to finish today. Is that right? 915, 920? Okay, all right, because I usually go to like, 9.05, okay. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking, I didn't calculate that. I'm, I've been lost all day. All right. Um, okay, so in verse 16, um, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body. What use is that? So the idea here is um, these callous words. Uh, my understanding is that that the words in the original language were even stronger than we read them in English. It, he might have been saying something like, if I understand it, uh, you know what? Um, go get yourself warm and fed. Now, that's kind of callous to somebody who's, not, who's cold because they don't have enough clothes and hungry because they don't have any food. Isn't it kind of callous to say, go get yourself warm and fed? Or even worse, maybe, it could have been that they were saying, um, uh, may God grant you food and clothing. I mean, that's just kind of chintzy, isn't it? 
when you and I can help is the issue here. So um, the issue that he's addressing here is one of personal responsibility. Now I want you to go with me to Matthew 25, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. I use it a lot. And I'm going to go to verse 36. Matthew 25. Actually, I'm going to go to verse 35. Jesus is commending those who have taken care of other people. And he says this in 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. You think Jesus would be um, would resonate with what James is saying here in verse 16? I think he would. Uh, he includes clothing uh, for those who don't have adequate clothing. He includes Food, for those who don't have adequate food, in his commendation of those, and if you remember in context, he's going to say, when you did it for them, you did it for me. You remember that? And by the way, he goes on to say, if you didn't do it, you didn't do it for me. So, James is talking about the connection between what I claim to believe and how I act, how I, how I uh, function. Cindy, can I get you to look up a verse? Go to Galatians 5, 6. Okay, so James here in verse 17, let me read it again. In, in the same manner, I'm sorry, I'm still in Matthew 25. I've got to get back to James too. Sorry, gang. Okay, so in verse 17, he's going to say, even so, Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So we got to deal with this issue of, of faith by itself. James is talking here about mental assent only. His point is that faith by itself is only mental assent, and therefore it's dead. I, th I think it's important because of this kind of debate since back in 1517 about Paul and James and whether or not they're in sync. Um, Cindy, read to us what Paul had to say to the Galatians in 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith, and in my translation, it says working through love. Doesn't sound like it's much of a debate to me. Faith works its way out through love. Acts of love and service, okay? So James is talking about mental assent only, not being worked out in the things I do. Now, we're going to go back uh, to the text and catch quickly um, one of these verses really, really is kind of comical to me. John, can I come back to you and let you read verse 18 and 19 out of James 2? But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. I think James has an imaginary friend. You say, he's got an imaginary friend here. 
This, huh? Uh, he is talking to us, but isn't it funny how he puts it in here? Well, you say, he's not talking to anybody, he's just writing. But, uh, and you're right, Katie, he is talking to us, but there's, he's kind of having this debate with an imaginary friend. And, um, and he says, you say, um, um, you're going to say here, um, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show your faith by my works. So the idea here is um, um, he argues with James here and the friend um, uh, try, is trying to separate faith from deeds. He's gonna say those are two different lists of things. They're two different requirements. They have nothing to do with each other. And yet, you'll turn with me. In fact, I think it's just two pages back in my Bible. Hebrews 11, verse 1, and that wonderful definition of faith, you know. Listen to what it says. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, the, the word that goes in your blank here, faith is invisible by itself. Think about that thought. Faith is invisible. It's a phantom by itself until it's worked out. And then verse 19, which is classic. It's, it's uh, nearly uh, required for uh, Dr. Bill. It's nearly required for apologetic teaching here. Uh, in 2.19, uh, in fact, I want us to go one other place. Steve Blair, can I come back to you and have you read Mark 1, 24 and 25 in just a minute? Uh, it, it seems to me that evidently James is making the point here that the devil is not at all confused about Jesus. All right, listen to what he says. You believe that God is one. Remember, that's that mental assent. That's it. I affirm it. I, uh, this is my confession. I believe in God. This is not in the Greek. This is, uh, this is um, um, First Seton 316, okay? Big deal. <laughs> Big deal. The devil believes in Jesus. The devil believes in God. How do I know this? John, read this. Okay, so let me set it up for just a little bit. In the book of Mark, um, in, in the gospel of Mark, uh, uh, it's like Mark is calling, uh, in a courtroom, calling um, one uh, witness after another, after another, after another to, to affirm who Jesus claims to be. John the Baptist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a demoniac that Jesus encounters in the first chapter of the book of Mark. And the demon is going to use the demoniac's voice box to talk to Jesus. You catching this? John, read verse 24 and 25. Oh, James? Yes. I'm sorry, no. Uh, Mark 1, verse 24 and 25. Who did I, give? I gave that to Steve. I'm so confused. Uh, but you knew that. Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. Who's talking? The devil. One of his minions, okay? Who's talking? Using this man's voice box, all right? And Jesus rebukes him. He's not rebuking the man. He's rebuking the demon within the man. And the, the demon claims who, Steve, that he is? You are the Holy, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. The devil knows who Jesus is. Do you? Do you? Isn't it kind of important that we make that distinction? So James here says, um, um, the demon recognizes God. The demon recognizes Jesus. But he is, well, a demon still. There's no connection between what he believes and how he lives, right? Because a demon is what? A demon. Even though they got their theology right. I find that really, really incredible to consider. Okay, let's go to the next little section. John, I am going to come back to you here. And if you would read 20 down through 26. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It is just so wonderfully practical as we come to this end of this study on wisdom and how to live wisely. James is going to begin this. Uh, if you remember through this entire study, from, from all summers we've been studying about this, uh, we've been talking about the wise as contrasted with the foolish, right? Now, Somebody, would somebody run over to Luke 153? I want to, Cindy, thank you. Luke 153. There's a word that's used there that is used also in this verse um, when it's talking about the foolish person here who doesn't catch this. So he says, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He's asking a rhetorical question. Uh, Cindy, did you find Luke 153? He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent it rich away empty. The word empty is the word translated here, foolish. Isn't that interesting? It is to me. The life of a person, and I want you to catch this reference I'm getting ready to make. The life of a person who is only a spiritual consumer. Okay? Uh, my life is only good 
for warming a church pew. The life of a spiritual consumer. Uh, the Bible is going to say here is lifeless, empty. It's a pretty dramatic claim, don't you think? The word James uses to describe this person who doesn't make the connection, doesn't get involved, doesn't get in the game in any way, is empty, foolish. And he uses two illustrations. I love them both. You will too. Um, in verse 21, beginning of verse 21, it begins to talk about Abraham. Um, for a Jew, it was hard to agree, uh, I'm sorry, hard to argue with this. Um, uh, in the Jewish dictionary, there wasn't a Jewish dictionary, but there had been one. If you looked up faith in the Jewish dictionary, it had an eight by 10 glossy of Abraham, all right? A picture of him right there. For the Jew, faith meant Father Abraham. The supreme example of faith. And for the rabbis, describing Abraham's faith, they're always going to take you to Genesis 22. To the story of Abraham's trip with a couple of servants and his beloved son Isaac up on Mount Moriah to offer the sacrifice. Now, you remember the story. By the way, we could spend a long time here because that story is so rich with meaning. But for Abraham, this was the supreme test of faith, the idea that Abraham had faith, but he proved it by being obedient. His faith and his righteousness were evidenced on Mount Moriah. It's interesting to me, and I put references here to Romans 4.3 and Romans 4.22 and Galatians 3.6, where Paul, in all of those places, says, uh, just as James says here, uh, the idea that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, but he had to act on that righteousness. And he did in extreme ways on Mount Moriah. Don't answer this, but do you think he really would have killed Isaac? Sounds like he had every intention to, as hard as that might be. His child of promise, his son that, that he had waited for, he's now a hundred years plus. Isaac is at least a teenager. He understands what's going on. You remember Isaac says to him in Genesis 22, uh, Father, where's the sacrifice? We got the fire, we got the knife, we got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, trust me, son, the Lord will provide. By the way, I'm going to get, what I'm getting ready to say is not political, it's theological. I think maybe one of the things that was being said by God in that moment, everybody around them regularly sacrificed their children 
for good luck or for convenience. I think God in this act, one of the things he's saying, it, this is my own idea. When the angel grabbed Isaac's arm and God said, uh-uh, I know you believe me. I think one of the things God was saying is, we don't do it that way. We value a child's life. Now you can do with that whatever you want to. So, Abraham's faithful sacrifice of Isaac was an illustration of his obedience to God in tandem with his faith. And then the second illustration is, believe it or not, faithful Rahab, who had an interesting choice of profession. Uh, the book of Hebrews is going to tell you what her choice of profession was in Hebrews 1131. Um, it, it, interesting that sometimes it'll call her an innkeeper. But if you remember the story, Rahab's faith resulted in saving the two spies, but she had a faith that saved her too. I've got to read. I'm going to go to Joshua 2 where she first comes up in Scripture. And I'm going to read what I believe is the most important part of her story when she encounters the two spies. By the way, we went through this oh, months back in my Tuesday morning Bible study, and we called the two spies Jason Bourne and James Bond. <laughs> so we talked a lot about Bourne and Bond. So here's Bourne and Bond. They're sent to spy out Jericho, and they encounter Rahab. Now I'm going to read uh, verse, I'm going to go down to verse 9 from Joshua 2. Now, before they laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, uh, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on earth below. You know, the first words that Rahab speaks here remind me of an old Church of God hymn. The Testament, a lot, a lot of our old hymn book with testimony songs, you know. And there was one that as I was, would lead when I was a young man, you'd watch the saints raise their hand. I know, I know, I know. You know? Hey, Rahab, you notice what she says in verse nine? I know. I know that God is the Lord. And that knowledge saved her but her action saved bond and born. I know. It's got to have something to go with it. 
and she kind of got it. Well, let me close out by saying I got a problem with car shows. I love car shows. Uh, when I was going to sleep last night, I was watching a couple of guys on a show that I'd never watched before who took a, six, a, red, a perfect red 62 Corvette and they took it off the chassis, even though it was in good shape. Took it off the chassis, rolled a brand new chassis underneath it with an L3, LS3 Corvette motor and transmission. And, you know, new wheels and tires and all. They had to, to kind of mangle the Corvette a little bit to get it to, get it to work. You remember, you remember the car that the guys drove on, uh, uh, old enough to remember um, Route 66? You remember, you know, those two guys, they, they drove a C1, a Corvette 1. And this was the end of that series, okay? So, so it, was, this one, it was red and perfect, and they, they put it down on there. I, I just love doing it. I, I love seeing what people do to restore cars. My next-door neighbor has got a, got a Mopar car in his garage that he's restored, and then, but he's had it since it was new, I think. And he just rolled a, like a taxicab yellow um, uh, 74 Caprice Classic in his driveway. I'm not, I don't know what he's going to do with that one, but it's kind of cool to watch. I love what, looking at old cars, and I love looking at classic cars, and I love going to car shows, but here's my problem with car shows. Too many of the car shows I go to, the guys that show their cars get them there on a trailer. Does that seem wrong to you? As a guy who loves cars and loves to drive cars, to trailer a car just seems wrong. If it's a car, it ought to be driven, right? <laughs> Silly. I, I hate to think that I would go up to one of these beautiful, uh, you know, my favorite car of all times, a 1963 Corvette, and look at a split, split window Corvette and say, man, start it up. Well, it doesn't have a motor. <laughs> but it looks perfect. Does it work? Well, not really. But it looks really good. It's got, you know, Got a Chevrolet bow tie somewhere on it. It's got Corvette, you know, scripted down the side. But it doesn't work. Does that seem as wrong to you as it does to me? I don't think James would have liked that either. The issue is, your faith may be a work of art. But does it work? Doesn't work. I want my faith to be demonstrated in the way I live my life day by day. It's not that it's anybody's business, but I need to show it nonetheless. And it's not that which saves me. I'm, I'm clear on that. I, I've got Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 committed to memory. But I also have verse 10. You're, you are God's workmanship created for good things in Christ. Guys, are you noticing that the last two or three weeks in church, there's been a real plea for volunteers? COVID has decimated the volunteer base here. Teresa, am I right? 
let's get involved, you know? Find a place to plug in. Wear a mask, stay socially distant, find a place to plug in. Does my faith work is the question. Thanks for hanging out with me doing this. Brother Paul's gonna be gonna lead us through 1 Corinthians 3 next week. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you'll join me with that. And we'll see you next Sunday at 8.30. All right.